welcome to the Blockchain Enterprise Review, powered by Fifth Nine. On the podcast today, we'll be discussing the role of technology in the coronavirus crisis. We will be joined by our host, Barry James, founding chair at the Blockchain and Frontier Technologies Association. And on the panel today, we have Yakin Prabdil, managing director at Fifth Nine, Lee Burkett, founder of Just Us and BIPs, Johnny Fry, CEO at Team Blockchain, and Kate Boucherel writer, speaker, and emerging technology strategist. Welcome, everybody, to the latest great debate. And we find ourselves in what, um, in the words of the old Chinese proverb, you may live in interesting times. We're certainly in interesting times as the streets are empty around where I'm sitting in a lot of other places. COVID is taking its toll already on the economy and, well, it looks like we're headed for a new normal. So what we're going to be doing right now today is I'm going to welcome some guests, a great panel here, um, and we're going to talk about what that looks like, what is going to be the effect, and what the not just the economy, but what the world is going to look like when we come out of this. Um, so in no particular order, uh, my good friend Johnny Fry, would you introduce yourself first? Hi, my name is Johnny Fry uh, from a company called Team Blockchain. Um, and we basically have been helping a number of organizations over the last four or five years look at the impact that blockchain and digital assets are having on the um, different businesses. I write a weekly analysis um, called Digital Bytes, and longer term, I have nearly 30 years of experience of running a publicly quoted asset management business, um, so I've been heavily involved in sort of finance and financial services um, for nearly 40 years, I dare say. So um, delighted to join the conversation today. We're delighted to have you. And Johnny is one of the most knowledgeable people I know. I think one of the most knowledgeable people anywhere, partly because every week he's he's looking at the scene again uh, for Digital Bytes. Yakin from Fifth Nine, thank you for hosting this. Would you like to go next? Sure. Thanks, Barry. Yakin Trabdial here from the Fifth Nine. I think we're super excited to understand what is this new normal. From our perspective, we work a lot on disruptive tech, specifically in the enterprise space, uh, focusing on business context and business solutions. So again, looking at the subjects of how the new coronavirus uh, will affect not just the economy, but the workplace lifestyle and the way we communicate and become authentic in the workplace and with our colleagues Super excited to hear what, what we've got to say about that. Yeah, me too. Now, someone who's already, you know, familiar with other worlds in fiction uh, and taking the, the the fiction world, or at least the blockchain fiction world by storm, is Kate Bucherell. Welcome. Please introduce yourself, Kate. Oh, thanks, Barry. Hello, I'm, I'm Kate Bucherell. I'm a writer, a speaker, and a digital strategist. So I'm actually an accountant by training, uh, and I've worked in business and with business strategy for more than 30 years now. Um, but I discovered blockchain uh, about six years ago. Um, I've been the accountant who could do tech for the whole of my career. Um, and 
I have been writing more and more and communicating more and more around the origins, the applications and the future of blockchain and cryptocurrency. I had a book published just in the last couple of weeks uh, called Blockchain Hurricane. And I also, as Barry said, I write science fiction. Um, so I write uh, a futurist series, the Sim Cavalier series around cybercrime and 2040s London, um, which has a, a decent following. And it allows me to throw all of the emerging technology and the emerging trends in the world up in the air and see where they might land in 30 years. And this is a really interesting time. It certainly is, and uh, we're really glad to to have you to help us do that. And last but by no means least, someone who's been at the forefront of fintech since way before it was called that, um, my good friend Lee Burkett from Money Brain, amongst other things. Lee, would you introduce yourself, please? Yes, good afternoon, Barry and fellow panellists. My name is Lee Burkett, as uh, Barry is very... eloquently introduced me as a, a, a pre-fintech baby, I suppose you could call me. We, I've been in the Valdin finance for 30 years. Um, I floated one of the first online financial services businesses called Presby.com, and that actually collapsed in 2009. And following that collapse, I vowed never to be reliant on the money markets or the banks ever again. And I set about a journey to build a peer-to-peer crowdfunding platform which we did, and I do feel like I'm in the middle of a science fiction novel at the moment because it's it, the the things that were happening in 2009 are happening 10 or even 100x today. Um, we a couple of years ago, Barry came to me and said, "Lee, we've got to do something on this digital currency front with peer to peer," and I was anti it, completely anti it. And then the more I looked in, the more I learnt. I thought there was a need for a new full reserve economy a global peer-to-peer economy, and that's what we've built. We've actually built an app and a wallet called moneybrain.com, which is uh, similar to Facebook's Calibra, and we minted our own currency 10 years to the day of Bitcoin called BIPs, and we did that in November 2018. So everything that we said uh, we were building to defend against is actually happening today. Okay, so yes, it does feel like living in um, a science fiction novel. So let's start with the economy. Um, uh, the Prime Minister has been doing lots of television just recently, as I'm sure you've noticed, and saying this is a crisis for the economy. Is it a crisis, Johnny Fry, and what comes next, everyone? Um, okay, Barry. Um I, th- I think the problem is um, is that we were stumbling around um, in complete and utter denial um, at a corporate, um, at a government and a personal level when it comes to looking at the debt. Um, we currently have something in excess of $255 trillion worth of debt before the latest shenanigans and the sort of the printing presses were turned open by the Fed, by the Bank of England, by the Um, European Central Bank. And unfortunately, um, this has been going on and it's been state-sponsored with quantitative easing. Um, And we have the crazy situation that um, you now, um, many, many parts of Europe, you put your money in the bank and for the courtesy of depositing your hard-earned money, you get back negative money when you actually take your money out. So you put £100 in and you probably get 99.5 um, pence back 
for every pound you put put in. So it's um, you're losing money guaranteed. That's having a huge impact on balance sheets of banks. Um, and the reality is, is that we've now reached a stage whereby the blatant manipulation of markets to try and stimulate an economy um, has come to an end as far as the banks are concerned. They've run out of their most powerful tool, and that's interest rates. And we have this crazy situation now where, in effect, um, you know, it's it's a bit like giving a, a, a crack cocaine addict um, – by companies and governments that are full of debt already and been binging on that, looking for the next high to prop up the stock market, to prop up the housing market. And what we've done again, we've given that crack cocaine addict another dose of quantitative easing. We've turned around to companies and say, oh, don't worry. If you're running into financial problems because of the current situation, you can go and um, borrow more money from us and it'll be interest free for a while. But eventually the music stops and you've got to pay it back. And if you look at this at a corporate level, my big, big concern, um, and, and I, sorry, I'm, I'm normally very, very positive, but I'm, I'm extremely concerned. Look at the S&P 500. Um, and the S&P 500, there are, less, there are 15 companies today that are net cash positive. The only major company that most of the listeners today will be aware of is Facebook. So your Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, iGoogle, they are all in debt. Now, companies don't go bust when they're net cash positive. They go bust because they've got debt very often. And so my concern is all we're doing is we're leveraging more debt on top of debt. And it's a bit like the emperor has no clothes on. And eventually people are going to wake up and say, oh, my goodness, how is this going to be repaid? Alternatively, they want a higher risk premium for the money. Either they want more interest and we're going to start seeing interest rates ratcheting up and eating into the 17 trillion of zombie debt that's wandering around the states at the moment. And that could have catastrophic implications um, on, on the economy as, as a, on a global base I'm talking about here. It's chilling. So um, has the music stopped? Is it really that badly, Birkett? Well, considering we had an email early this morning, Barry, that said uh, bank stress tests are now on hold, yes. So there were continual stress tests during the 2009-10 crisis, um, but as of this morning, they've been cancelled. <laughs> so that basically means that they're all bust um, and they need the capital to flow, so all bets are off and we're just going to keep feeding everybody because uh, if we don't, it's just going to implode. So the economy is in... in probably a crisis that it's never, ever been in before. Um, and I don't mean to be doom and gloom here, but it, it is that severe. So does anyone else see this differently? Or do we have to move on and think about what happens next? Um, I, I'd like to say it's when I first started my accounting career, I, I arrived in finance at the time of Polypec. And so I've spent 30 years understanding very clearly that, that revenue is sanity and profit is vanity and cash is king. But I think that there's only a, the generation that understands that has, um, has gone. And we've noticed in the last few years, certainly there's been an erosion of that, um, of that 
the, the, the responsible industry, there's been the erosion of pension funds, there's been the, the habit in Silicon Valley of, as Dan Lyons puts it, um, uh, growing fast and cashing out without actually getting any, any proper traction, proper business models um, to drive business forward. And I think the fact that um, the coronavirus um, pandemic has arrived has really thrown all of that into sharp relief. And any warnings that have been given uh, are, are too late now. It does sound a bit like RBS as well, doesn't it? Growing fast and cashing those bonuses out and, and running. Barry, Barry, it's Johnny here. But so, so to be fair, not all the bankers are in in complete denial. Um, and and probably one of the most prominent international bankers is a lady called Christian Lagarde, who was at the IMF and is now head of the European Central Bank. Um, in obviously in 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 Europe, and her and um, our ex um, governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, um, have been very very vociferous about the whole concept of a digital currency. Um, and, um, and I think, okay, whilst we've set the backdrop of, of debt and whilst Kate, as Kate quite correctly says, that there's been this obsession um, of, of, of profits and not worrying about, um, if you like, the, the, the income and, the, and the, the, the debt that's been built up, I think we just need for one second just look at why is this debt built up at a corporate level. Um, and what we've seen is that many, many executives in, in the public companies that we buy their goods and services on a daily basis, they basically are getting remunerated. Their share options, their bonuses are very often directly linked to earnings per share. Now, in order to drive your earnings per share up in a business – i.e. the income for every share that's in existence, you can do one of two things. You can either do what you're meant to do, i.e. grow the earnings and keep the number of shares the same, i.e. become more profitable, more efficient, greater market penetration, etc. Or you keep your earnings at the same level and you reduce the number of shares. And you reduce the number of shares by doing buybacks. Now, if you can go into the market and borrow money at 1%, 2 3% and actually cancel shares – but your earnings are level, which is pretty much where they've been for many, many companies in many of the Western markets, your earnings per share perceived are rising and therefore the executives are actually earning monies. So that's been a big, big driver in the corporate world. But from the banking point of view, you've seen Christian Lagarde, you've seen Mark Carney, and both have been sponsoring studies. The Bank of England have actually been working on this since 2016 and looking at the viability of a digital currency. And I think in a peculiar way, um, COVID-19 is actually going to do the world potentially a huge favour because rather than continually stumbling on, as, as Kate says, it's brought it into stark relief and actually bringing forward much greater transparency, much greater trust. At the end of the day, that's what a blockchain technology is really all about, is bringing much greater openness. And if we have a digital currency not only will it tackle the nefarious activities of the black market and the like, but it'll enable um, the governments to effectively target people that have got very, very little monies potentially and give them money via helicopter economics. They've already done it in um, Hong Kong. We're talking about um, doing it um, in America in two dollars, thousand per citizen. Um, and now I, you may well find today um, with the chance to actually talk about doing something very, very similar, effectively underwriting the payroll um, of companies. So targeting actual cash. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So we're headed into really uncharted territory when the incoming bank uh, 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 governor of the Bank of England, um, Andrew Bailey, only in the last week or two uh, was telling the Treasury Select Committee that we are going to have not a cryptocurrency, but a digital currency, a digital pound, which he was pretty much saying that that's inevitable because of if we don't, someone else will, and it's competition. But... You know, in World War II, there's a sort of general assumption. I was talking to someone um, actually in the Treasury this morning. There's a general assumption mostly when we head into difficult times like this that we'll batten down the hatches and innovation will grind to a halt. And But actually in World War II, um, the, it was the aircraft industry, sorry for the pun, took off. Um, so you're talking, Johnny, and what does everyone else think here that this might actually have the reverse effect of the same sort of effect uh taking us into a, a digital currency uh, uh, which is a completely different thing from a cryptocurrency is it not i i'd, I'd like to jump in and, and and home in a little on the transparency and trust aspect i think definitely the transparency and trust aspect of a digital currency properly uh, properly established um, is fantastic. Um, but there is also a wider um, implication for the transparency and trust and behavioural change that comes from using immutable transparent records. So, I mean, Johnny, you talked about the, the, the problem with linking reward to EPS is that the there is a motivation there for poor behaviour as well as responsible behaviour. Um, and if the decision making becomes as transparent as the currency, then we have the potential to change behavior for the better because we start to have considerable oversight over decision making and processes. I'm not sure what you think about that. Well, yeah, I, I, look, you, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to just just ask ask any of your friends and family, you know, how much do they trust your typical politician? Um, what 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 are their views of your average banker? And, and these are the people that are in control of the the levers of our of our economies and society. Now, I'm not for one moment suggesting that they're doing anything um, improper, because hopefully there's enough rules and regulations there. But it, it, I find it quite amusing that everyone talks about um oh you know look at the look at the terrible things that have been going on in the cryptocurrency market and isn't it awful um yes a lot of it is awful but what about the 320 billion billion dollars worth of fines and penalties that the banks have been had imposed on them in the last 10 11 years so these so-called bastions of security and tradition and we should trust you know they, they've had systems and processes which have been found wanting. And so therefore to have something to shake us out of this stupor and say there must be a different and better way that is much more transparent, there's much more accountability, that has to be a good thing. And, and, and I'm not saying that, you know, we, go, we return to the sort of crypto anarchists and we all start training in Bitcoin and all that sort of stuff. By, by no means. I'm simply saying we need to have a system and a process where there is less chance for manipulation and we can try and improve the efficiency of the way in which things are done, because we are verging right now, in my opinion, on the on the brink of the Weimar Republic. 
whereby for those that you know haven't don't know the history just look what happened they were walking around with wheelbarrow loads of cash you've got the same situation in places like zimbabwe venezuela and whereby people have just lost confidence in the currency and that's my my worry is is that unless this is handled correctly just keep pouring more doing more of the same isn't fixing the problem and you can't go on printing money forever without ending up in that situation. So I want to want to ask you, Keen, are we headed, you know, uh, if, if government want to begin to deliver money that's actually going to be spent and stimulate the economy, are we headed for a situation where we will all have a wallet on our, on our mobile phone and that will be the account uh, into which that might be delivered, for example. Yeah, I think that, that there, there are some strong plays that come out of the discussion that I think add a lot of food for thought. One of the things that resonates strongly with me is that we've been speaking about the big corporate giants, whether it's Fangs or the others, uh, who will be getting these handouts and, 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 and survival money. But the reality is the lifeblood of these small to medium companies, you know, including the likes of us on the call, that's where that's where the real economy sits. So I think that the concept of having digital wallets and having the ability to support the life of the economy is is one of the most important things. In saying that, I mean the whole point of being able to offer true digital value, and I'm not saying it's a security at, at this point in time, but digital value that can be traded in times or in war times like the ones we are right now for other goods and services and, and prevent the mayhems that we are seeing at the shops. I think that's that's a, a very good use case of what effectively digital currency was created for in the first place. And the ability to distribute that responsibly and charge them with the right level of regulation, whether it's smart contract management or whether it's uh, purchasing power or self-regulation. Well, the fact is that we have the instruments that are available and, and, and they were never available you know, previously. What concerns me is why aren't we using that? Why aren't they funneling a series of high-powered innovation funds to effectively start to spearhead and drive what is needed as this sort of digital transformation and this change, not just in government, but in social mobility and perception and social working and, and all of the capabilities where, you know, as you said, this is going to be the new norm. Or are they, Kate? The concept of using digital cash in all of the ways it can be used is is fantastic and i think there is a huge potential um uh, as yakim has has said in having the the function of that cash nailed down to uh, a specific use case to have conditions around it rather than simply just doling out cash i think we you're absolutely right that we've got all the tools are there to achieve something really special with with electronic cash. The the caveat is well, there there the, the, there is a good thing and there's a good thing and a bad thing here. So the the difficult thing is that we still don't have full connectivity and a full suite of digital skills in society. Um, there are a lot of people being left behind. There are there are problems with digital inclusion. I mean, just a, a an example today: the, my children's school is finishing, um, and there has been a mum on Facebook saying, "We don't have access to a computer. We don't have access to a printer. How do we get hold of all?" of the assignments that are being put on the, the, the school's website. 
And so the, the digital exclusion is very real. However, COVID is providing us with an opportunity. Because we are all isolated, we are starting to find novel ways of communicating and collaborating. And it means that your grandma is now online. The neighbor down the street who's never considered it is starting to use a, a smartphone. So we are presented with not only the tools to make massive change, but also the opportunity to include everybody. And that's massively exciting. I think it was you, was it not, Kate, that uh, said this is now the, what, the fourth, fifth utility? Oh, uh, connectivity has to be the fourth utility. Uh, it's, um, it, it's becoming as necessary as water and power. Um, and the the danger if people are not properly connected is that the that elements of society will fall behind. And I don't think there's been an imperative for change until the last couple of weeks. And I think the next 18 months are going to see a real shift. So the potential is that this is going to knock down all the barriers to digital adoption, not just for new stuff and frontier technologies, but for the boring old digital stuff, perhaps. Johnny, you were going to say something? Yeah, I, I just wanted to put some numbers behind what Yakim was saying about the importance of um, small, medium-sized businesses. If you, if you look at either the Federation of Small Businesses statistics or look at um, information from the government coming out um, early this year, um, you know that the SMEs account for ninety-nine point nine percent of the business population, um, and you know the total the employment of SMEs actually accounts for sixty percent of the total. So whilst we can rattle off various big corporates that employ thousands of people, the vast majority by far are SMEs, are small businesses. And I think one of the things that we are seeing increasingly is the ability for um, people to work remotely, to people to actually effectively set their own businesses up um, in the cloud, to have, and have look and feel as if they are as big as a big company because actually you don't need a receptionist, an office and all the other bits and pieces to be able to work very, very effectively from home or from a remote location. So we are moving there, but we mustn't underestimate the importance of small businesses. And, and many, many of these businesses do trade from day to day. And the reason I say that is if you look at, again, government statistics, um, there are 30% of the population in the UK that have less than £1,500 worth of savings. So that's roughly net one month. So if we don't act quickly, or if the government don't act quickly, then you're going to find you know, the, a third of the population are bankrupt. They cannot afford to pay their bills. So we've got to move quickly and actually do something about this. But we've, we've got a great opportunity to get on with this because the, the market is already moving away from massive companies to lots and lots of small businesses, which are much stronger and more vibrant. But they're the ones that need the help and support. And, and Kate's absolutely right. They need to have connectivity. I, I don't move at the moment from where I am sitting in my home because I might lose the Internet connection. Well, that, so when I talk about people talk about, oh, well, let's have 5G, well, it'd be nice to get 3G to work across the UK. But there's some of us have actually run uh, a business without an office, without a receptionist for more than 10 years now. That technology has been around, but it's not been adopted, but it's going to be. 
uh, but it, and it's not going back. What's that going to mean, Lee, for the economy um, and for all those office blocks? Are they going to still be full? Well, I think the going back to Kate's point around the utility of um, internet connectivity, that's that's a priority number one needed now. I think it was an interesting debate. I don't know if you saw me on last night, LinkedIn, Johnny. The, we'd been discussing about the pilot we'd been working with issuing digital cards um, into a, you know, like a, into your Apple store, just a, a MasterCard from BIPs or another digital currency. And somebody last night posted that they just used, uh, been able to send 100 digital MasterCards to the parents of vulnerable families in a school. So the, the technology is there now. If somebody does have access to a phone, that you can get in money immediately to them. Um, and I think this is what needs adopting urgently. And to be fair, it doesn't matter whether it's a digital pound, digital dollar, or our currency, BIPs, as long as there's an FX and an interoperability, you can get money to, to where it's needed most now. And the cost of technology to actually operate that is, you know, should also be free to those that are unable to afford them. And they're just a basic identity machine that enables you to use as a chip and pin or something like that. So I think the bigger picture is, is great, but we're at the moment in time, we're not really dealing with the urgency and, and that can be addressed today. Yeah, the urgency is going right up, isn't it? Uh, but, uh, John, you wanted to say something. Yeah. No, I, okay. So we, we've painted a, a fairly, you know, well, I think realistic but very gloomy picture. Picture, but but, but let, let me give you a, a concrete example of um, of of how what we're talking about can actually operate in the real world. Um, you know, if we if we wound the clock back, say six months, I, I've been involved in conversations like this about climate change, and and everyone was very very concerned about the levels of pollution. And very, very interesting to see a charitable organization called Plastic Bank teamed up with a company called SC Johnson. And SC Johnson are the people who make your, your boot polish, uh, cherry blossom and your Glade air freshener and pledge polish, et cetera, et cetera. So a big, a big sort of um, global manufacturing of household goods um, that many of us have got their products probably in our kitchens and bathrooms. Well, they wanted to do something about the plastic. And so what they did, they actually said, OK, so what we're going to do, we're going to Go to um, villages initially in Asia. They, they picked Indonesia and said, okay, well, we're going to give um, the locals um, cash for every bag of plastic they pick up off the beach and around the villages and in the streets, et cetera, and we're going to recycle plastic. And it, it, it started off and it was a huge success. But then what they found out was that, um, and, and sorry for being sexist, but typically dad came home and said um, to the kids um, and sometimes said to their wives, well, oh, great, you got a bit of cash. Um, that's good. Um, and it was a quick clip around the air and then it was back down to the local boozer. And S.E. John said, well, that really wasn't what we wanted to do. The idea we wanted to try and make a difference and help those villages. So they stopped giving cash and started giving out some sort of digital payment, a coin, a token, you know, a, a, a digital green steel stamp for those that are a little bit older and those a bit younger think of it as an air mile. And because most of these villages in very remote locations had a mobile phone, either already tech, techie savvy, they could actually then go into various different places and they could exchange those those credits, those units, those tokens, whatever you want to call it, for books, for clothes, for food. And now there are 609 different locations that Plastic Bank are working on, and they've recycled over 30,000 tonnes of plastic, and it's using a digital incentive 
So there's no cost. There's no banking charges. Most of these people, I suspect, especially the children that are getting on their mobile phones, they don't own a bank account, but they're able to swap their tokens for clothes, food, books and the like. So there are examples already of the sort of thing we're talking about. It is happening. It is real. And it's very, very achievable and possible. As, as Kate was saying, we've got the skills. We just need to now join up the dots. Yeah, I think Johnny's exactly correct. And it does concern us why we, um, in the more advanced um, economies, don't adopt the tools. And I think it goes back to what Johnny was saying earlier. And the, the tie goes out. You can see what everybody's wearing. I think there's that. it's easier to adopt digital currencies in less advanced currencies because they don't really have anything to hide. And you know, they are where they are. And I think the you know, that, that this may be a tipping point for, and I think if we, you know, I'm sure if Greece or Portugal or Italy or Spain had the opportunity to rip everything up and start again with the digital peseta or, you know, Corona, whatever tomorrow, they'd do it. So I think that there is a tipping point and there will be some countries and who adopt it and, and who will be first will be interesting. China make noises about it. And I think it's 50, 50, whether they do really want to be the, the first to have a global digital currency. But the, the, put it this way, they'll, they'll be doing many, many hours night and day in both the Bank of England and other central banks around the world about can they adopt a digital currency ASAP. So are we headed, folks, for a universal income just out of necessity and the crisis? We've already got uh, the Americans talking about dropping money into everyone's bank accounts, and obviously this is the means to do it. Are we headed towards a universal income? It's probably more fundamental than that. I mean, we, you know, we've had a good conversation about currency, but I think we're heading towards universal digital trust, probably, is a better description. Because once we create a foundation of trust where the social distance of me watching the inclinations of your face and listening to the tones of your voice and your body language makes me trust you more, either to do business with you or to conduct something that's closer to home. I can't do that over a digital medium today. Today, we're still left with, you know, 10-year-old video conferencing. And, you know, and even with AR and VR, we still don't get that digital trust relationship created very quickly. And with that trust will come the ability to transfer money uh, more confidently, the ability to pass on services, goods, and and be able to provide uh, narratives. And more importantly, work together as a crowd in a more confident and sustainable manner. So I think that that the subject of digital trust and and the DLT type technologies that we are, you know, we've been talking and preaching about for the last decade will come to fruition and and start to close the gap between this social distancing and, and become the new digital narrative. So bridging the social distancing, really interesting. And, you know, it's interesting to speculate what form that might take. Um, So we're going to be out of time soon. Um, So I'd like to just um, invite everyone to uh, just give us uh, a final thought um, around the theme, ideally, of what should we do next and who should do it? Whether it's government, whether it's local communities, whether it's those fangs who, uh, even if they're not cash rich, have great reach and great influence. What should we be doing and who should be uh, and who should be doing it? Can I, can I put a shout out for the creatives in answer to this question? Because there are a lot of people who can't work on Zoom 
Um, there are a lot of uh, self-employed creative people who are not necessarily going to have that much benefit from uh, purely being in the digital world and who are not currently remunerated in a standard fashion. And I think that government has a role to play in terms of some form of basic income uh, being far more um, widespread. And I also think that society has a responsibility to um, to support the creatives within uh, within the society and, and, and give value where it is uh, where it is earned. Um, so that's my two penneth on something that we could do that's very practical. I'd like to jump on the creative because I think for for me I, I'd like to issue a call to arms. I think that this is a you know in this challenging times whether it's government whether it's fangs whether it's 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 individuals like us i think there's a call to arms of crowd coding some solutions around the pandemic that we're in and being able to su- support and sustain those who can't support uh, uh, you know themselves in a digital forum but also moving towards the new normal right what how do we shape this new normal is there a way that we can create uh, technologies that flatten the curve, that effectively get us over this hump, that allow us to become more productive during these times of uh, pain. I- I'm keen to understand w- and explore how we can actually put together the instruments to to get like-minded individuals together. Um, and, and I'm afraid I haven't seen any massive call to arms yet, either locally or globally. Actually, if you go to my um, LinkedIn account, and feel free, everyone who wants to answer that call to arms, uh, I'm sure Yakin's uh, account too, but you can use mine, uh, We where we're beginning to get some people together locally to look at using new technologies like additive manufacturing and 3D printing to create things that we need, such as respirators and so on. So it's it's begun already. Let's push that along. What else should we be doing, folks? Uh, Barry, it's, it's Johnny here. Um, uh, listening to my fellow panelists, that, and and uh, you know, what should we do? It, it reminds me of Kennedy's 1961 speech: um, "Do not ask, you know, what the country can do for you, but what can you do for the country?" Um, and I think this is it is all of our responsibilities. But clearly, um, you know, there are certain organisations, entities, bodies, I, the government, that can do a lot more than just, you know, us four or five people here on a telephone. And given, I know we've all got reach and we've got profiles, but there's, there's a couple of things I think that um, can be done at a very, very practical level. Um, and one of them, uh, and again, I'm sorry for delving back into the history books, but given the fact that we have um, so much reliance on small to medium-sized businesses, given the fact that the bank's no longer seem to want to lend and support many of those businesses for a variety of reasons. We have to find a way to help finance these companies. And whilst I'm not advocating a return to the to the to the chaos and nonsense that we saw on initial coin offerings, which were which were seen as a way to help finance businesses, I, I would suggest that people have a look at the um, the precedent that we saw with the way pirates were financed. And what happened was the crown of France, of England, of Holland, of Spain, the crown and the aristocracy basically gave a few bars of gold to your to your average Long John Silver. He went off and bought a boat and arms and men and then raided the ships of you know other countries. So the French went out and beat up the English. And when they took the ship back, they then shared the bounty with the crown 
and with whoever financed them. And probably one of the most famous Britons ever is Lord Nelson. And he basically was a privateer. He was a pirate going up and down the Spanish coastline, ransacking the Spanish gold that was coming out of, um, you know, the, the various colonies. So, but, but, but the real point of this is that those ventures, they were not a limited company. They, they were no debt instruments. They were, ironically, a gentleman's agreement, a shake of a hand, I'll give you money, but I expect if your venture actually turns out to be profitable, I want to share in the bounty. And, and very often that conversation was led by the king or the queen of, of, of the relevant country. So if we can find a way to enable companies to be able to raise money without the costs and the restrictions of a full-blown security, but have some built-in protection, you know, be able to identify the person, you know, KYC and ML, absolutely vital, and have some, have some basic controls and good business practices, maybe we can start seeing some of these SMEs raising you know, money, but Barry, you've been fantastic in the crowdfunding. You've been doing this for longer than, you know, almost when sort of Adam was a boy, you know, and you've had some great success. But so maybe it's a combination of crowdfunding, funding, it's revenue generation tokens. It's a, a digital way of enabling local people to support local businesses in a venture that they like without having to incur massive legal and accountancy costs of trying to raise money. Yeah, thank you, Johnny. Yeah, I think we've learned quite a lot over those years, not just through the ICO years, but also the years, you know, before that. And actually, I wonder now, Lee, um, as being someone who's been involved in a lot of that as well, now is the time for governments, regulators, and in fact, uh, the whole community to start to, to to use that, learn from that. I know fairer finance is something that, um, you know, is close to your heart and part of your vocabulary. Um, do you think we could start moving from greed is good to we're all in it together? Yeah, I think there, there are a couple of things that needed to happen. And uh, we discussed earlier, there's obviously a high powered innovation fund. So it needs to be collaboration. Um, I think one thing that's happened in the last week, which is gives that potential global collaboration a chance is the cutting of all red tape. And, you know, the, the innovators are the, the guys in the bedrooms, you know, the, the, you know, some wonderful global innovators out there, but we do need to have a global um, collaboration. I think, you know, there, there is, there is, a, um, I mean, I know we've all been speaking to, there is an international uh, appetite for a global crowdfunding proposition and there is an ability to use digital currency and we've, as BIPs, have, have agreed for that to be utilised and FX with all currencies. But I think that the thing for me, it's, it's, it's basically all coming together in a time of crisis and, and find a way out. And it, it can only, it needs to be quick thinking. It needs to be immediacy. And you can't get that in these conglomerates. So it is going to have to come from the likes of ourselves and, and try and widen that net and use the network effect as, as quickly as possible. The solutions are there. They just need to be brought together in a, in a collaborative way. And unleashed. Yes, absolutely. And uh, a last word from you, Kate. I love the idea of piracy. <laughs> Where's your parrot, Kate? It's, 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 a it's the 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 future is definitely everybody taking responsibility to 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 meet that call to arms, um, and I, I love the concept of the piracy side of things, um, and I think there's there are 
more and more initiatives starting to emerge now where people are really taking responsibility for helping others to get off the ground and a philanthropic approach is something that we need to encourage absolutely and we are like it or not now all in it together so i'd like to thank the panel um for what have been fascinating uh, and revealing discussions uh, i think things are going to move very quickly so perhaps we can um, uh, reprise this in, in in a couple of weeks or so uh, i'm sure there'll be a lot to talk about but for now lee burkett um yakin okay bushrell isn't it and johnny pry thank you all this podcast has been brought to you by Fifth Nine Digital. You can find us online at www.fifth-nine.com. 